if I could get your attention, just keep eating, doing whatever. Um, I, just a few announcements. Um, this is a 10-week series every Monday, successive Mondays, 10 in a row. We should be able to finish before Thanksgiving in that case. And uh, I think we'll be in this room every, you know, unless something comes up. And if that happens, we'll certainly notify you. On your tables there, there is a sheet of paper. If your email has changed or if I don't have your email, uh, there's also two lists I have. One uh, is just kind of a general information that I send out that most of you are on. I've also got a separate list for the questions. I do questions that you can uh, do beforehand so that you can be up on the lesson when you come. And I recommend that you, you do that. If you want those questions and you're, and you're not get, you didn't get lesson one, then you're not on that particular list, put your email on, on that little sheet that's on each table, uh, if you would, if you want that, or if your email's changed or anything like that, um, so I can uh, keep up with everybody. You'd be amazed how many people come up to me all the time and say, I'm not getting the, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, and you go... Uh, do, do I have your email? Well, no. <laughs> or, well, I did change it, you know, like that. <laughs> and uh, when you write it out, write it very uh, carefully and legibly. When we did this last uh, spring, I had some that were written in hieroglyphics and <laughs> cuneiform, and I don't know what it was. <laughs> no one could read it. Uh, and so... Uh, I, my MO is I send you those questions the week before. Also write a lesson plan that's very much like the, the sermon, you might say. And I, it's about a three-page white paper, and I email that out to you. you. You'll usually get that on Thursdays, right? And so um, you'll get all that about each one of these lessons in advance, the questions and the lesson and uh, anything else you might need, if you ever need anything, you can just email me and say, can you send me another one of these or send me that? Or if you have any questions, you can certainly email me. It doesn't, don't think you're ever bothering me because it doesn't take me 10 seconds to answer an email. Uh, a lot of you send me questions all the time, and it just comes back pretty fast, I think, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, so... Uh, lunch will, will be served like this. It will always be around the corner. And uh, we'd appreciate it, actually, you know, if, if you're kind of on the fence whether you want to eat or not, I'd appreciate it if you would eat because we have to guarantee a certain amount of lunches, you know, to the, for the caterers to come. And so uh, we pay them whether you eat or not. Uh, so if, you, you know, if, you, if you're hungry, <laughs> please eat. Um, all right, anything... Uh, I failed to bring up any information that I need to tell you. Just raise your hand. No? Okay, good. All right, today's lesson, I thought since uh, we're studying 2 Corinthians, which was a letter, it's a Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, I thought that we would uh, talk about Paul today, the author, because he's really an important guy to the church, to this church, to us in that he wrote half of the New Testament. And he really brought the gospel to the new world. And his story is incredible. And I really want to tell you his story today the best that I can. But I think the key word in Paul's story is transformation. 
transformation. Paul was this legalistic, religious uh, Jewish man in, he was a Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees, all the trouble they gave Jesus in the Gospels? Paul was one of those Pharisees in Jerusalem, very religious, very legalistic, and he was a great persecutor of Jesus and the Christians that came after Jesus was resurrected. And what in the world happened to change him, to transform him to where he became the leading spokesman for Christ? A great story of transformation. And, of course, in the world of sports, in the world of sports, no one has ever been transformed as much as the Medfield High basketball team. Medfield would win, I'm not sure, but uh, pretty wild. All right, transformation. And a lot of people think synonymous or a synonym to transformation is change, but biblically they're really quite a bit different. The world wants you to change. God wants to transform you because God wants to change you from the inside out. So biblically we might say change is a worldly concept, but being transformed to the image of Christ is certainly a biblical concept, and it's what happened to Paul. Change is often temporary. Uh, it can be good or bad, but it's usually bad, you know, if, you, if you're like me. Uh, they say, the joke goes, that the only one who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper, right? Uh, but things are always changing, and, you know, you try to keep them the same, but they're always changing. You can't hold on to them. Tolstoy, great author, said, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change themselves. That's the truth, isn't it? We can find what's wrong with everybody else, but ourselves, we can't, not so much. If you try to change, people can sometimes get suspicious. I saw this joke about a husband who came home early, and he wanted to be nice, so he brought his uh, wife uh, flowers and candy, and he said, I love you so much, honey. She burst into tears. He said, what in the world's wrong? Well, Junior broke his leg. Your mother's coming to live with us. The washing machine broke down, and now you come home drunk. <laughs> Something's wrong here, right? Uh, but in contrast, transformation, and uh, the biblical concept of transformation is a blessing given uh, that gives, Jesus gives us eternal life, peace, security, meaning, fulfillment. All these things come to us. And Christ is responsible. He is the gift. We say the grace of God. We say the free gift of God that's given us. And we have a promise from God that all who have believed in Jesus will be transformed and forgiven and spend eternal life with Him, our Savior. And so to, in today's lesson, we'll find out how the worst enemy of the church, the, of Christians, the worst enemy they had, a man who arrested them and had them executed, was transformed completely into the leading proponent for Christ, really in the history of the world. He did more than really probably anybody in the history of the church. Paul was the most active and accomplished the most. So what happened to this man? He start, We call him Paul, the Apostle Paul, but he started out as a guy named Saul of Tarsus. That was his Jewish name, his Gentile name, his Greek name became Paul as he had this ministry to uh, the Gentiles. But he started out as Saul of Tarsus and there in Jerusalem. He was originally from Tarsus. His family sent him to Jerusalem to be educated after his bar mitzvah. He was about 12 or 13. 
And when he was considered a man like that, they sent him to school because they wanted him, they had great ambitions for him, to go far and, and become a Pharisee. And so he was schooled for like 10 years, and he did such a good job. The famous uh, rabbi, Gamaliel, took him under his wing and educated him. And so he, was, he became a bigwig there, in, a religious bigwig in Jerusalem, and he did attain to the rank of Pharisees, which is kind of like the special forces of religious leaders there in Jerusalem. They were the keepers of the law. They were the interpreters of the law. Everybody went to them for teaching, and they were very well respected. There was only about 4,000 of those guys in all of Israel. And Paul, or originally Saul, was actually one of those guys. Amazing that he could change that much. And Paul ended up... Uh, <laughs> He, we find him first in the book of Acts in chapter 7. He is in his synagogue, and this Christian evangelist named Stephen comes into the synagogue there in Jerusalem, a local uh, meeting place, and he shares the gospel and tells how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And when many people in the synagogue started going over to Stephen, Believing the message, Saul became enraged. And why would he be so emotional and so angry? Because he spent umpteen years educating in the religion and attaining this great rank and position as a Pharisee, and these people were going to bring it all down because they were going to change everything on him. Now it was going to be all about Jesus and not about their religious, their structured religion and Judaism in Jerusalem. And so he was enraged. He had to stop them. He had put a stop to it. And so Saul and the people with him arrested Stephen, drug him outside the city wall, and stoned him to death. And they were so pleased with what they had done that they said, we need to do this to all those guys. And they went to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body there in Jerusalem, and got permission to, per to arrest and persecute all the Christians in Jerusalem. And they began this great campaign of arresting them and putting them in jail and executing some. And they were so successful at it, Paul decided a lot of these guys are now fleeing for their lives and we know some that have gone to Damascus, and particularly a guy named Ananias. So Saul went to the Sanhedrin and got permission, got a letter, like a warrant for the arrest of Ananias, and he was taking that letter to Damascus where he was hiding out, where Ananias was hiding. And on the way to Damascus, something incredible happened. Let me try to take on the first person, the character of Paul, as if I'm Paul, and tell you his story. While I was on the road to Damascus with my companions, a bright light shone in the sky, brighter than the sun. It was blinding, and it knocked me down. And a voice from heaven spoke to me and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as I'm laying there, blinded, I'm wondering, I'm hoping that this is not Jesus. <laughs> because if it is, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> My life is over. 
And worse than that, I've wasted my whole life. And even worse than that, I'm a murderer. And Jesus answered, it is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul, why do you kick against the goads? A goad is like a prod, a cattle prod. He was using that, Jesus was using that image saying, Saul, you've heard the gospel. God has tried to draw you to himself. He's tried to prod you to the truth. And you've fought against it. You've resisted it. You refused it. Rejected. Why? This is the truth. And so Saul, obviously, at this point, was subdued and humbled. And Jesus told him to get up and told, his, told him to get his companions to take him to Damascus, where he would find a man there named, guess who? Ananias, the very guy he went there to arrest. And he will tell you how you must suffer for my sake. That's good news, isn't it? Oh, boy. I got a new job, suffering. And it's interesting that the, Jesus said that. As, as you get into the story, you'll see uh, what he was telling him. Uh, so this is, at this point, obviously Saul began to transform and become you know, a different person. Now, instead of being a persecutor of Christ, he was now literally going to work for Christ. He was going to be Christ's appointed minister, missionary to the Gentiles. And he was going, Jesus was going to send him into places that no one had been. They'd never heard the gospel. So back to me being Saul. And so I went to Damascus and Ananias told me what Jesus, the directions that Jesus had given and told me all about Jesus. And after that, my, my vision came back to me and I went out in the wilderness of Arabia, and the Spirit of God, and even Jesus himself, ministered to me for quite some time, almost two years, until I was ready to come back and serve him. And I went back initially to Damascus and had a great ministry there, went immediately to the local synagogues where there was a Jewish presence in Damascus, shared the gospel, and so many people were believing in Jesus that they ran me out of the city they, to protect me. They had to lower me out of the, over the city wall in a basket, kind of humbling. But uh, I went at that point down to Jerusalem. I had been gone for three years, and now I show up in Jerusalem. And naturally, the church, the Christians there, still remembered me as being a really bad guy. So you can imagine the reception I got. They did not believe me that I could possibly be a believer in Christ. They thought I was tricking them. And then this wonderful man, this great encourager, Barnabas, came alongside and introduced me and said, I'll vouch for this man. And they accepted me there in the church. And I had a, a short ministry there of two or three weeks where I got to spend a lot of time with all the apostles Peter and James and John and all the guys, and they shared their story with me, and I shared mine with them. But then the Jews in Jerusalem were so angry that I was a turncoat that they tried to arrest me, so I fled back to my hometown of Tarsus up there on the Mediterranean in Asia Minor. And while I was there, Jesus continued to minister to me. In fact, in my second letter to the church at Corinth, you'll read in chapter 12, while I was there in Tarsus, 
Jesus wanting me to be reassured and prepared to go out and represent him as his ambassador actually took me up to heaven. I got to go up to heaven and I saw sights and sounds, the glory of God that are indescribable. And when I came back, I was so full of this glory and so excited about everything, God saw fit to bring me down to earth. And he gave me what we might call the thorn in the flesh. And I prayed, it was a great physical pain, and I prayed three times for God to take it away. But he said, no, I need you completely humbled. And if you ever had a migraine headache or your lower back went out or terrible knee pain, you know that awful physical pain, when you're in agony, it's hard to be proud, isn't it? Yeah, I've never seen a proud person with a migraine headache or a back, lower back injury. And Jesus said, I want you humble. I want you down to earth because then you'll know that the power is in the gospel. It's in the message and it's in the spirit that I have indwelt you with. And my power and my glory is sufficient to carry you through. And so after about nine years in, in Tarsus and, and God ministering to me in those ways, Barnabas shows up looking for me. And he tells me about this wonderful Gentile church in Antioch. This is about 47 A.D. Just to give you a little timeline, Jesus was probably resurrected in 33 A.D. And so here we are, uh, maybe 14 years later, and the gospel had still not gone, even though Jesus gave the Great Commission to go to the whole world. At this point, the gospel still had not gone into Asia Minor or Greece. And this is where Jesus was sending me. But first, I had to go to the church at Antioch, which was in Syria. And that church, Barnabas and I ministered there to those Gentiles there for about a year. And then they said, you need to go into these lands in Asia Minor where the gospel has not been heard. And we'll finance you and we'll send you. So my home church became this Gentile church in Antioch. And they sent Barnabas and I first to the island of Cyprus and then into Asia Minor where we had an awesome ministry. The governor of Cyprus believed in Christ and he was transformed. And we planted several churches there on that island of Cyprus. Then we went into the mainland of Asia Minor, into the area of Galatia, and went to all the churches, all the villages and towns there and planted churches there. And everywhere we went, our MO was to go to the local synagogues. There was a Jewish presence all around the Mediterranean world. And they had, would have synagogues in every city and village and town. And we'd go there first on the, on the uh, Sabbath. And we would talk to people and share with them how Christ fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And many of them would believe. But every time... The leaders of the synagogue would get upset because they saw their financial base eroding. <laughs> they saw the members going over to another way, right? Another religion, Jesus. And they would persecute me and try to kill me even. And so I would go to the next city at that point. 
I'd like to leave my disciples in those cities to develop those churches, and then I would go to the next city. And so I went all through the Galatian area, planted churches everywhere, and then went back to the church in Antioch to report. We'd been out in the field for about two years, and Barnabas and I went back to Antioch and reported all that had happened. Amazingly enough, when we got back to Antioch, we got a letter from my disciples that we left in Galatia that already some false teachers had come in and were preaching a different gospel. They were trying to distort the true gospel of Christ. I couldn't believe it could happen this quick. And I wrote the letter that's in your Bible called the letter of Paul to the Galatians about that heresy, explaining to them the truth of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel that must not be changed or altered. You're not saved by works. You're saved by the grace of God and it's received by faith. In fact, while we were in Antioch, some legalistic uh, Pharisees from Jerusalem came up and they were trying to tell the church there that they needed to be circumcised and they needed to eat kosher food and all these Judaistic traditions. And so Barnabas and I took the leaders of the church at Antioch and these Pharisees back to Jerusalem. We had a church council. And at that church council, everyone got to speak, and the unanimous verdict, officiated by James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, there in Jerusalem was that they don't, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to do any particular works. You don't need to keep kosher foods or obey the Mosaic law. That's why Jesus came, to atone for our sins. And he accomplished that on the cross. That's the grace of God. And by receiving that, believing it, making it your own, by faith, it becomes yours and you are saved. The works that you do come after that. You work and serve and because now you're saved and you want to. You are transformed and become a different person, and then you desire to go out and serve and do good works, as Paul was doing. After that church council, we went back to to Antioch and delivered that news, and then I went on my second missionary journey, and I traveled again through the Galatian and revisited all those churches, built them up. Then we went on through Asia Minor, going all the way west to the coast to the Aegean Sea. And at that point, we desired to go north and east into Bithynia to share the gospel. But the Spirit of God impressed upon us that there were many people seeking God in Macedonia, which was in that day a part of Greece. And so we crossed the Aegean Sea to the city of Philippi. And we found some ladies, Lydia and some of her friends, down by the river. They didn't have a Jewish presence there, didn't have a synagogue. But these ladies were down there, and we went down there, and they were seeking God. They didn't know who he was, but they believed in some type of higher power. And we introduced them to Christ. And they were the first Christians in Europe, in the Western world, in that area there. And they started that church there in Philippi. Well, we were arrested because the locals said, we can't have this. 
new thing come in, him trying to change everybody in Philippi. So they arrested me and gave me a thorough beating. And you would think that's a horrible thing. But you know what happened? Through that arrest, I was able to lead the jailer and his whole family to Christ. And after that, I left uh, Luke there, who wrote, you know, the books in your Bible that you know as the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he stayed there in Philippi, continued to minister. And I and, some, and Silas and Timothy, we went on down to Thessalonica, another important city there. And we planted a church there. And persecution arose again. And we, they chased us out of there. And I went down to Berea. And the Bereans were great students. They studied the Word of God. And they believed in Jesus. And a great church was planted there. Uh, and then again, persecution arose. And we were driven out. But I left all my disciples there because there was so much going on. And I left by myself and went to Athens, the great city Athens. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? All the brilliant men, all the great philosophers meet all the time down at Mars Hill at the Areopagus. And they debate. and They, let, they listen to ideas. I'll go down there and share the gospel. And so I went down there. And they let me speak. And they were very interested in what I had to say until I started talking about the resurrection, life after death. They did not believe this. And then they laughed me down and hooted me down. But there were a few converts there in Athens that did start a church. And I left there and headed on south down to the city, the port city of Corinth. Now, Corinth is a wild and woolly place. Everything imaginable that's depraved and corrupt goes on in Corinth. It's like everybody there is like an NFL football player. <laughs> Don't go there, huh? <laughs> Too personal, is it? <laughs> but there really was, you know, it, it's just, a, just an awful place, and the people you know, just did everything you can imagine that we would consider immoral. But again, I went to the local synagogue, and there was many people who, uh, Jews there who were converted until they drove me out of there. And then I went out into the streets of Corinth. And when I was, went out, I, I, you can read this in my letter, my first letter to the church at Corinth. I was scared to death. I was scared to death. I was by myself. And I'd been driven out of all these other cities and even laughed out of Athens. But the power of Christ in the message of the gospel just jumped out and grabbed people. I was amazed because I'm not much of a salesman. I basically said, you don't believe that, do you? That's never a good closing line, by the way. But they said, yes, we do. And they came by the hundreds and later by the thousands in Corinth. And I spent 18 months there in Corinth ministering and planting churches all around that area and making disciples. Very productive ministry there in Corinth. And then I traveled back to the home church at Antioch, having been gone for about four years. 
and reported all that had happened. And they were amazed and they couldn't wait for me to get back on the road for the third missionary journey. And I went back through Asia Minor, and this time stopping in a major city of Ephesus, the capital of Asia Minor. At that time, uh, it was a port city and probably one of the largest cities in the area. We're estimating maybe 300,000, 400,000 people. And there was a bunch of small towns all around within walking distance as well. And uh, I was able to share the gospel in the synagogue there as I had done before until the persecution arose. And then someone got the bright idea, you know, they have a school of debate called the School of Tyrannius here in Ephesus. And someone donated the rental for that, and I got to teach in the School of Tyrannius every day for two years. And there were so many people that heard the gospel and took it out into the surrounding areas that is no exaggeration to say that everyone in Ephesus and the surrounding areas had heard the gospel. And thousands had believed in a tremendous church sprang up there. So many people came to Christ in Ephesus that the leading industry, which had been idol-making, remember this was uh, the whole Mediterranean world except Israel, were polytheistic pagan idol worshipers. And one of the biggest businesses was making idols. But now that business was threatened. No one was buying idols because they'd come to Christ and only believed in one God. And so a great persecution arose. You can imagine people get mad about religion, but when it comes to money, they'll kill you, right? <laughs> you threaten their money. And so they came after me and arrested all my followers and threatened me. And so I, I uh, went before the city council, and they did find me innocent there. I had enough following enough, enough uh, support that they found me innocent. It was in Ephesus that I wrote both of my, I wrote my first letter to the church at Corinth. I had received report that Corinth had continued the people, even though they had come to Christ, they had never grown, and they were actually still wallowing around in their sin and their corruption that they had before I introduced them to Christ. And so I wrote them the letter that's in your Bible called you call 1 Corinthians. It's a letter of admonishment. And in it I go through all the different things that are wrong that they're doing and correct them and admonish them. And I answered some of the questions that they had there in that letter of 1 Corinthians. And I sent that letter not knowing how it would be received, finding out later it was well received, the people repented. And then later on, I got more news that some false teachers had come in to Corinth. And they were teaching a slightly different gospel and corrupting the true gospel. And they were attacking me. They felt like if they could bring Paul down, then it would raise them up. And they were criticizing me. So I wrote the second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, that you have in your Bible, to defend the true gospel 
and to defend my ministry as an apostle. And then having received news back from Silas, who had hand-delivered that and come back with news that it was well-received, I then began taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem, for they were on hard times. And all the Gentile churches, feeling one in Christ with even the church in Jerusalem, took up an offering of very much money for their needs. And I went about from church to church and town to town collecting it with my last stop at Corinth. And the church at Corinth also gave. And so I then went to Jerusalem where I gave the offering and it was well received. But the Jews there, the non-believing Jews in Christ, had me arrested. And the Romans, to keep me from being murdered, put me in prison in Caesarea for two years. And of course, when they put you in prison, it's hard to see the rosy side of it. But while I was there in prison, I got to witness to all the government officials, all the governors and, and the rulers and everybody. Uh, they had their offices and their homes there in Caesarea where I was in prison. At the same time, Luke was with me, ministering to me, taking care of me, and he was able to interview all the eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus had said and done. He journeyed back and forth all over Israel, interviewing all the eyewitnesses, including his mother, Jesus' mother Mary. You ever wonder why in the Gospel of Luke you have the best account of the angel speaking to Mary and the best account of the birth announcement and the birth of Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke because Luke got all that information from the first hand from Mary. And so while I was there in prison in Caesarea, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke about 58 A.D. at this point. And then claiming to be a Roman citizen because my father was a Roman citizen, I demanded a trial and I was sent to Rome and had a shipwreck on the sea and got to float around in the ocean for a couple of days. We finally washed up on the island of Malta where by God's grace I was able to do some miracles and preach the gospel and the whole population of Malta came to Christ. It's, again, hard to imagine how it could be good to be shipwrecked, but it saved all the people on Malta. And you know that church is still there today, the very same church. And then we were taken to Rome where I was in prison, but I got to be in a what they called a house imprisonment. If you had the means, and the church at Philippi had sent me the money to rent your own headquarters, you could stay there and pay for the guards that would keep you there. And I was under house arrest like that for two years in which I wrote the prison epistles, the prison epistles of Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon and Colossians. So again, God brought great good out of something that seemed really bad. And also while I was in church in, in uh, Rome, Luke wrote the book of Acts, the history of the formation of the church. He took occasion during that two years and wrote the book of Acts. 
So incredible things were happening. God was performing all these wonders and accomplishing all these things through us, and we were all amazed at the outcome, how we were being blessed by God. But looking back, don't forget, I was harassed in every town, run out of Ephesus, stoned in Iconium, flogged in Philippi, busted in Berea, laughed out of Athens, crushed in Corinth. I could go on and on. I was stoned and left for dead down there in Galatia. Yet I consider it all worthwhile. I consider it all a wonderful thing because I compare it to the glory that I saw when I was in heaven. I compare it to the promises of God that we will all be resurrected and spend eternity in glory with Christ and the suffering means nothing to me in relation to that. My opponents paid me a great compliment. They pointed at me when I came into Jerusalem and said, there's the man who has turned the world upside down. They didn't realize it. They had it wrong. God had used me to turn the world upside right, right side up. It was upside down. And when Christ came in, he made it right. I marvel that God would take me, the chief of all sinners, and use me to be an evangelist to the, gospel, to the Gentiles. It's incredible. I murdered Christians. I'm the chief of all sinners, and God transformed me and used me. God also inspired me to write about half of the New Testament that's in your Bible. Amazing, isn't it? Let me go out of character back to Charlie. <laughs> and let's talk about a few of the principles and applications we can learn from Paul's transformation and his journeys and all the, God, all the ways that God used him. Just a few things that I had written down. Uh, Paul resisted Christ initially. And Jesus said, so why do you kick against the goad? In other words, he'd heard the gospel many times but he just resisted it. He rejected it. Why? Because he was holding on to his traditions. You know how powerful peer pressure is? How powerful traditions, the hold it has on you? The way you were brought up? It's a powerful influence. It's hard to give up. But look, this is the truth. This is the truth. If your traditions and your upbringing conforms to this, great. But like Paul, if they don't, if you're like Paul laying on the road to Damascus going, I hope this isn't Jesus, you need to give up all that worldly stuff and come to Christ. The purity of the gospel. Secondly, notice that God took the initiative. In religion, we're active and we take the initiative and it's all about what we do and what we accomplish and all the, the laws and the codes that we keep, right? But what we see in the Bible is that God took the initiative. God took the initiative to send Jesus into the world. God took the initiative to put Christ on the cross and to atone for our sins. And, and why would he do that? 
out of love, pure love, he did it for us. God took the initiative. It's not about our works. That comes after we believe in what God has provided. Thirdly, God blesses us by using us in his ministry. I mean, we look at Paul's <laughs> ministry and we go, the please don't bless me that way. I don't want to be stoned and imprisoned. And, but he kept saying over and over in all of his letters, yeah, all that happened, but what, the, the blessings I got far outweighed all that. Trumped that completely. And he knew you know, what, what, what God had accomplished through him. And given his life meaning and purpose. Fourth, suffering accompanies God's blessings. You know, we live in a fallen world. It's a tough world. It's tough out there. In Second Peter, First Peter 5, Peter says, brethren, talking to the church, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes your way. It's not whether or if. It will. There's trouble out there, and it's coming. So in this world, God wants to bless us in every way, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have to suffer. We're going to have to suffer and go through trouble now, and the glory is later. This is not heaven. This is earth. We look forward to heaven. What we do now, we do because our eyes are in heaven. And fifth, wherever truth was proclaimed, wherever truth was believed, wherever lives were changed and transformed, heresy soon followed. Wherever Paul went and had the, these churches planted and did this great ministry and had all these people believing, false teachers always came in behind him. And you can go, uh, any of these missionary uh, ministries will tell you that everywhere they go and have a great uh, ministry, whether it be China or India or Cuba or Eastern Europe or Russia or wherever they go, there's also a bunch of heretical <laughs> false teachers in there peddling their wares as well. And that's to be expected. Um, one time when I was in Cuba on a mission trip, we ran into, to, I won't say who, but a cult group. And I was shocked. I just said, why would God allow this cult to come in here? These people are hungry and thirsty for the Lord, and they're coming in droves. Lord, don't let them be corrupted by these people, these cult people. But that's the spiritual warfare that we're involved in. See, the adversary of God is active as well. And that's why we need to be active. We need to make sure that Christ is proclaimed because the adversary is absolutely active everywhere around the world as well. So uh, in conclusion, wrapping this up, we started talking about started off talking about transformation and changing and what the difference was. Uh, change is temporary. Transformation is forever. It's eternal. You know, when you think about change, you change your minds, you go back and forth. 
Uh, we change jobs, we change offices, we change homes, phone numbers. You lose weight, you gain it back. We can learn new languages, new skills, but it's all temporary. Transformation by Christ is eternal. It's permanent. And change is something that we accomplish. Transformation is something that God accomplishes in you, changing you from the inside out. And all who have believed in Jesus have been transformed, are continuing to be transformed as they grow spiritually. And, of course, in the resurrection, we will be perfected. And we look forward to that. This is an act of God. This is a great distinction between biblical Christianity over religion. Paul experienced a profound inner transformation that can only be accomplished by God. Only God can change hearts. Paul saw his conversion and ministry as the expression of the contrast between life under religious law that he had previously lived and the transforming grace of the new life in Christ. He felt himself free, free now to serve God, free of all the weight of all the morals and all the laws that ever, and all the incredible hypocrisy of trying to keep all of that and not being able to. So next week... We will move into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and it will be about the God of all comfort. Are you going through any trouble, anybody? Have any problems? Paul is going to address that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and say, God is there to comfort you. The God of all comfort wants to give you peace in spite of your circumstances and see you through those. So look at those questions and uh, read the lesson and I'll see you here next week. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and how powerful it is. Thank you for the ministry of Paul who took the gospel to the Western world, to the Gentiles, who planted all those churches so that we're standing here today. Thank you for using him, Lord. And I pray that you would use the rest of us, maybe just a taste, give us just a taste of what Paul was blessed by as you use us in the world around ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.